we are gathered and we are one body. The table is set. Come and eat. The word communion is defined as the act of holding Christ in common. The Greek word for communion is koinonia, which means a partnership or a participation, a common communication and distribution as they were distributing the bread. Even when believers were scattered throughout the first century world, they would gather most often in small numbers, most of them in house churches, in fact. And thanks to those scatterings and those smaller gatherings, the gospel spread around the globe. I appreciate the lyrics to the news, Newsboys song, He Reigns, which you may have listened to just prior to this service because it was in our song list. It's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain, perhaps songs being sung in Shona, the native language of believers in Zimbabwe, as I've had the privilege of hearing in person since chills down your spine. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. Some of those makeshift shanties with corrugated aluminum roofs can be really noisy in a tough rainstorm. But the song of the redeemed can drown out even the loudest downpour. The song of the Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. Even when these small groups would gather in private courtyards, in places where they could be in big trouble and might even be put in prison for simply singing worship songs out loud. They could sing silently, mouthing the words to these hymns and songs because they know that God hears our hearts. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation, a love song born of a grateful choir. Whether that choir is scattered in homes, on boats, on wooden benches, under little palm branches, stuck on poles for a roof, in a forest, in the desert. One day, all those voices in every situation of worship will be brought together as one gigantic, grateful choir. To those gathered underground, our son visited Egypt one time, and he was able to visit an underground church, literally, because it was in a cave where Coptic Christians would worship. Matthew 18.20 says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. As we gather virtually today to take communion, we are participating in something that unites us with believers around the world. Let me share this commentary from Charles Eliot. It's a 19th century English theologian. He says, where two or three the true meaning of these words is embodied in the phrase from early believers, where three are, there is a church. Ellicott says that the strength of the Christian community was not measured by the number of people in a room. It was to be measured by its fulfillment of the true conditions of its life. He says, the presence of Christ was just as true and just as mighty, and his communion with his church was just as real when his followers were few in number, as it was when believers were gathered in the great congregation. Christ would be present with them, with the two or three, to plead for them as their great high priest, and to impart himself to them. So, this morning, living water, we are gathered right now, participating in the true conditions of life as it appears in the year 2021. Though scattered physically, temporarily, we are yet gathered as the ecclesia, the church, because Christ is 
in the midst of our gathering through his Holy Spirit. The table is set. The bread will be broken and shared, and we will participate with fellow believers in worship, in fellowship, in true communion, not here, but also around the world, because many others are probably doing the very same thing. Come and eat. Here are the apostles' words regarding the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And he also said, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we get to celebrate with you in our midst. Thank you for the incredible meaning that this communion has for all of us. There are many of these communions that I'm sure many of us will remember for the rest of our lives because they've been so unique. And I'm grateful that you are not limited in time and space as we are, and that you can inhabit the hearts of your people no matter where we're gathered. Thank you for that. Guide us now through this time of teaching in your word, which is always powerful, always personal, and always cuts right to the marrow of our bone. And we pray that you will do that through your word today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A cold case. A cold case became warm. Clues to Jesus' identity. We needed a little cold case music going on in the background, so that's what we're experiencing today. I decided it was time for us to get right back to basics and look at a few top 10 reasons why we can understand the identity of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're into cold cases or not. We watch quite a few of them on TV. But one thing that we know for sure is that a cold case can stay cold for a long period of time. And sometimes it just takes a set of fresh eyes to reopen the case and discover truth, which has been there all along. So imagine now, if you will, a case that goes cold and remains that way for 400 years. That's what happened, in a sense, with God. Nobody heard a single word from him for 400 years. Not a clue. It would have appeared that the case had come to a dead end. Well, once upon a time, people had really wanted to know more about the promised Messiah, but the farther away people got from those early predictions, the colder the case. You want to know what happened that ignited the imaginations of theological detectives and caused them to start digging into the clues once again? An angel broke the silence. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. What's the city of David? Bethlehem. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wait, what? There's a clue, and it's a big one, and it's pretty hard to miss. In the city of David, Bethlehem, Christ the Lord, 
the anointed one, the Messiah. Aha, there's a big clue. Now, if you can start with just that one clue and begin connecting the dots, then the evidence starts to pile up. 30 years after that angelic announcement, Jesus of Nazareth connected a whole lot of dots between the numerous clues that God had provided about the Messiah. He was saying, in essence, I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the promised Messiah. Now, when detectives solve a cold case, they get the transcripts from interviews with the key suspects. They want to hear what the person says about him or herself. There are a lot of clues in there. And what somebody says about himself is considered key evidence in a case. Fortunately, Jesus told a lot of stories that were filled with clues. We're going to look at the top 10 clues today to help solve the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Number one, Matthew 21, 33 through 42. In one of the stories Jesus told, there was a master who owned a vineyard. The master left the vineyard under the care of tenant farmers and left to visit another country. Well, it becomes apparent that the master of the vineyard in this parable is God. God's the master. The earth is his vineyard. He created it and the people who live in it. He gave them the responsibility to care for it and for each other and to live for him. Well, in this parable, when it was time to harvest the fruit, the master sent servants to claim it. But the tenants beat one servant, killed another, and stoned another. These represents the prophets. After this happened again, the master sent his own son, but the tenants killed him as well. So did you catch the clue? The tenants killed the master's son. Since God's the master, the son is Jesus. He was talking about his imminent death at the hands of power-hungry mankind. And that's a clue that becomes much more obvious after his death. But boy, howdy, it's an important clue. Let's move on to number two. Number two. Matthew 13. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn for me to heal them, or to save them. That's Matthew 13, 13 through 14, and you can see also Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Jesus is speaking these words, and he's quoting an Old Testament passage about God, the one to whom people can turn in order to be saved or healed. And he's applying that passage to himself. But here's the thing. Only God can become the Savior of mankind. Isaiah 43.11 points to this Savior. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. You can also cross-reference that this prophetic message to Isaiah 43, 3, 45.15, 45.21, 49.26, 60.16, and Hosea 13.4. So it's not an isolated incident. In his book, Faith is Like Skydiving, I like the title of that, Rick Matson writes this. I'm not the one making the exclusive claim about salvation. Jesus is. He's the one who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's from John 14, 6. I'm simply trusting his authority to know these things. It's like going to my excellent family physician. In his case, that's Dr. Lehman. 
If he tells me my cholesterol is too high and that I need to cut down on sweets and fatty foods, I believe him. He's an expert on the matter. Sure, there are plenty of other voices I could listen to about my health, including celebrities or infomercials and the Internet. <laughs> to the extent that these voices disagree with Dr. Lehman, they're most likely wrong. My physician has made the exclusive claim that his patient, me, has a certain malady that requires a certain and specific treatment. I'm just the amateur who believes him. We're just the amateurs. We need to believe that we have a malady that only Jesus can fix, and that malady is sin. Number three. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will repay every man for what he has done. And we can cross-reference this with Revelation 22, 12. Psalm 62, 12, Isaiah 40, 10, Ezekiel 34, 17, and Matthew 25, 32. The Old Testament plainly taught that God was the judge of man. You can also see 1 Samuel 2, 10, Psalm 56, and Isaiah 2, 4. If Jesus claims that he will judge mankind, then he's clearly equating himself with God. For him to simply claim that he will judge all mankind doesn't necessarily mean we can take that at face value. But when you combine that claim with all the other clues, they begin to pile up and make a strong case that he is co-equal with God because he's the second person of the Trinity. He is God, God the Son. I remember watching one of those cold case programs where a lady was saying there are lots of circumstances, circumstantial evidence and if you had only one of those circumstances, it would be like a single pencil. And she broke the pencil. She said, you can break that case apart. When you pile up enough of those pencils, and she had a huge wad of pencils that looked like a small log. And she tried to break that. And of course, she couldn't. She said, when you pile up enough of this circumstantial evidence, it becomes unbreakable. It's a solid case. And that's what we're starting to see happening right here. Number four. Mark 5, 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. You can cross-reference that with Mark 5, 22 and Mark 7, 25. God alone is supposed to be worshiped. As Jesus himself noted in Matthew 4, 10, Luke 4, 8, Exodus 23, 34, and 14, Deuteronomy 8, 19, Jeremiah 16, 11, and many others. And Jesus allows people to worship him. That's because Jesus is God. Have any of you seen the Olympic track and field athlete named Sidney McLaughlin? It looks like McLaughlin, but it's pronounced McLaughlin because I looked it up. Well, Sidney McLaughlin is an American hurdler and sprinter, and she won a gold medal just a few days ago in Tokyo. Amazing. Sydney became the only woman in history to run the 400-meter hurdles in under 52 seconds. Brand new world record. This record is a huge achievement. But listen to Sydney's own words as she clearly states who deserves her worship. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything. But by his grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Number five. Omniscience is implied, though not proven, because this is one that's very difficult to prove. But it's implied in many passages that describe Jesus' extraordinary knowledge 
and his ability to know what somebody else is thinking. <laughs> Here are some passages that are very consistent with omniscience. Matthew 9, 4, Matthew 12, 25, Mark 2, 8, 14, 13 through 15, Luke 5, 22, and a whole bunch of others. And the Old Testament is also replete with lots of incidents in which we can see Jesus' omniscience. Mark 2 is one of my favorite passages. I preached on it a lot. It's that true story about when Jesus was teaching in a house that was so packed with people that nobody could get through the front door. And so these guys had to carry their friend up on a mat to the roof, and they made a hole in the roof, and they had to let their friend right down into the living room in front of where Jesus was teaching. And there were some judgmental teachers there, religious leaders, who were really upset because Jesus, instead of saying, be healed to this guy, first said, your sins are forgiven. Remember that one? Well, let me pick up the story in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, remember, he, they had only thought that to themselves. They hadn't spoken it out loud. But in verse 8, it says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Not only did Jesus know what these guys were thinking, but he also proved that he had the authority over everything in creation, including sickness and ultimately death. He was able to make that kind of statement that his sins had been forgiven because he healed the man in their presence. Number six. Matthew eighteen twenty, For where two or three are gathered in my name, which we read at the beginning of this service together, there I am in the midst of them. If there are multitudes of small groups gathered all around the world, or in the case of this last several months, probably millions of believers, because of the pandemic, gathered virtually, how can God be present among them unless he is omnipresent? He says, Matthew eighteen twenty, the second half of that verse, I am with you always to the close of the age. Hmm. God alone is omnipresent. 1 Kings 8.27, 2 Chronicles 2.6, Psalm 139.7-8, Jeremiah 23.24. So for Jesus to say that he's going to be among his believers even after he has ascended to be with God the Father means that he is omnipresent. Now that's good news. Isn't it good to know that just as he promised, he's with us even if we're scattered geographically but gathered virtually? I think that's good news for us. He's not limited like we are. And there's something that we can be thankful for. Number seven. Jesus commands the winds and the waves. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And suddenly 
there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man? Even the winds and waves obey him. Well, we know who he is because of all these clues. He's God the Son. Months ago, this is kind of funny in a way. It's, it's not funny, haha funny, but it's funny, weird funny, or wow funny. Months ago, when there were lots of demonstrations going on in our country, one, in fact, that started to break loose in downtown Detroit, we watched on the news as a hastily formed rally or march began, and they were starting to pick up more people as they continued to march down the street. They seemed to have no purpose. We weren't sure where they were going or what they were going to do. But as had been the case, we had seen a lot of other crowds gather, and it didn't end well because there was a lot of violence that wound up uh, erupting from those crowds. And I remember Joy saying, you know, Lord, it really would be nice if you could just break forth with a huge rainstorm and send those people home. Well, you know what happened. Big rainstorm. <laughs> Everybody scattered. They all had to get out of the rain. And so they went home and that crowd broke up and there was no violence that afternoon. Now, I'm not saying that my wife has the ability to control the weather with her prayers. <laughs> what I am saying is that that event caused us to drop our jaws and we went, wow, that's pretty incredible. Now, if that caused us to be jaw dropped, can you imagine being in that boat? When Jesus spoke to the winds and the waves and everything calmed down immediately, it's no wonder that they were completely flabbergasted and they would say, who is this man that even the winds and the waves would obey him? He is Jesus and he is God, the son, creator of heaven and earth and the one who has control over his creation. Number eight. I just mentioned that Mark 2 passage in the story where Jesus heals the paralytic man. And he can say to that person, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then a short time later, so that you can see that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And so that's pretty compelling evidence. But there was another time, too, when Jesus healed a man with a deformed hand. And he got in trouble for that one with some religious leaders because he was healing on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Religious leaders asked Jesus if the law permitted a person to work by healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus was teaching them about the difference between their version of a day of rest and a day of worship as compared with the kind of work he had come to do. And he said to them, yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. And to prove his authority, just like he had done with a paralytic man, he said to the man, hold out your hand, and it was healed. That's from Matthew chapter 12. Now, God alone can do that. You can also look for cross-references for Exodus 34, 7, 2 Samuel 12, 13, 1 Kings 8, 34, Daniel 9, 9, Micah 7, 18, and many others. Number nine. Jesus is the Christ. He taught that the Messiah, or the Christ, or the Anointed One, the Promised One, is both Lord and God. And he clearly claimed to be the Christ. Matthew 16 16 through 17 and verse 20, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Number 10. 10. 10. Now, not surprisingly, clue number 10 
in this unbreakable circumstantial evidence pile that's been piling up for us is the clue of all clues that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus rose from the grave. He was dead, and then he was alive. And he's still alive today. We can see this in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And here's a quick recap of these events. There was an earthquake. An angel came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. Guards shook with fear. The angel spoke to the women. And then the angel said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was laying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. So the women were filled with joy. They ran from the tomb. They told the disciples what they had seen and heard. They didn't believe him at first, had to go out and look at it for themselves. But there were lots of witnesses. And do you know the very moment in history when the cold case became warm? That was the moment Jesus rose from the grave, literally warm. <laughs> and after that resurrection, he appeared to many so that there are numerous eyewitnesses, witnesses who testified that he was alive. These are people who spoke with him, saw him, touched him, felt the hole in his side where the spear had pierced him, ate with him. They had fish by a charcoal fire on the beach. They listened to his instructions about the future church. They became so transformed by this personal encounter, these eyewitnesses, that they changed the world by sharing the gospel about Jesus Christ. God the Son, who lived a sinless life, died a cruel death on a cross, was buried, remained in the ground, rose again on the third day. So the question becomes, what will you do with this Jesus? That's the persistent question that arises out of all these clues that we're looking at to answer the question, who is this man that even the winds and the waves would obey him? I've quoted C.S. Lewis so many times I've lost count, but I love this quote from him, and it applies as we're trying to answer that one question. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these abundant evidences, so many of them with cross-references so that there are hundreds of them in Scripture, and with all the eyewitness evidence that we have from those who saw you after you had risen from the dead, I pray that people who are listening to these words and reading these Scriptures for themselves will make a choice, and that they won't try to dismiss Jesus as just a good teacher, but they will say, I have to make a choice. He either is Lord or he is a madman or worse. And I pray that they will trust him as Savior. And I pray that they will reach out to him and say, God, I've been reluctant to just simply admit all the evidence points to you as being exactly who you claimed to be. You are the promised one. 
you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're the savior of the world, and I need what only you can provide. You are the great physician who can fix the worst malady that I have, which is sin, because that keeps me separated from you. Heal me, be my savior, and walk with me for the rest of my days and into eternity because of your Holy Spirit who seals that salvation and who transforms me to be more like you every day of my life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.